Chapter 14. Laura wouldn't tell me anything else about Peter Kelly's visit until the next morning when Paul and the boys left to hitch up our horse. And even then, she wouldn't breathe a word until she had gone outside and made certain they were inside the barn. After she closed the cabin door, she turned toward me and spoke in a whisper. I was so startled when I saw that it was Mr. Kelly yesterday, I didn't know whether or not I ought to let him in. What did he say? Laura took a deep breath. Well, he was full of nerves, I could tell. You should have seen the way his face was flushed, as if he had a fever. And he talked so fast I could hardly keep up. But he said he knew our Paul believed in his heart that Indy and John had murdered someone. And maybe he had. But he wasn't certain himself. And so all he wanted to do was talk to Indy and John just for a while and try to find out the truth. Laura looked at me wide-eyed. I was wrong to go against Paul and let him in, wasn't I? Not so long as Paul don't find out, I grinned. Laura straightened her shoulders and pressed her lips together. Well, I did let him in, even if it was wrong. Her voice fell to a softer whisper. And he brought me a little handful of spring violets, too, she added. Violets? Over here. And she led me to our wooden chest. I put them inside with our other things. Sure enough, inside our chest was a knot of flowers from the woods. Delicate purple ones. Me and Laura dearly loved violets. I know, I shouldn't have taken them, she whispered. No one ever gave me such a thing before and I didn't know what to do. Truly, I didn't. Aren't they beautiful, Reb? And she lifted them up from the teacup of water where they were sitting. And my heart pounded, fearing that Paul and the boys might come stomping in. Maybe you shouldn't keep them, I told her in a jumpy voice. And my eyes darted from the flowers to the cabin door and back again. Reb Carver, I dare say you should be the one to talk with all the things you have kept from the Indians. Laura whispered loudly. My little flowers won't do any harm, I don't think. And she set the violets carefully back in their teacup and closed the heavy wooden cover. Never got flowers from a gentleman before, she said, smoothing her hand across the top of the chest. Even if Mr. Kelly is helping a savage Indian, they're still real nice. I didn't say a word. Just hoped in my head that Mr. Kelly was smart enough to know that he could get me and Laura in awful bad trouble with Paul. If he kept coming around to our house, and didn't watch a step. Standing up, Laura cast her eyes around the cabin and sighed. I surely hope he doesn't come back this morning, she said. What would he say about me keeping a house like this? He's gonna come back, I asked, wide-eyed. Laura tugged Mercy off the bed and began picking up the yarn that she had unrolled every which way. He said he might, if Paul and the boys are gone. I already knew that they were going to the mills with the last of our shelled corn. After they had the wagon ready, they would rattle down the road with our old horse, Mary Esther. She walked so slow and plodding, I knew they wouldn't be back from the mills until well after dark. Sure enough, not long after they left, we heard the sound of a person coming down the path toward the house. Me and Laura both jumped up from our bacon, and Laura nearly spilled a whole jug of water in her rush to scrub the dough and flour off her hands. When we reached the door, Peter Kelly stood outside waiting. He was wearing the same wide-brimmed hat and ill-fitting coat. 
Good morning, he said, pulling the hat off his head real fast and turning the shade of pink, I noticed. Laura answered, good morning, in a soft voice that didn't even sound like her own. This here's my sister, Rebecca, she told Mr. Kelly, as if he had never seen me before. Strange to say, this time he had a single snowshoe tucked under his arm. Indian John, I told the snowshoe, I hold the snowshoe from red hair in my hand and touch the smooth curve of the wood made from the straight white tree that grows strong snowshoes. My fingers trace the packs of the netting woven tight as bowstrings by Ricebird's quick wooden needle. Red hair asks me, did you wear this snowshoe in the moon of the big spirit? In the moon of the suckerfish? In the moon of the crust on the snow? Eeyah, eeyah, eeyah. Yes, yes, yes. I sigh. I do not see why my friend asks such foolish questions. How does he think I would walk in the winter moons when the snow is deep and the freeze is hard? Red hair says he is asking for the trial. That is the reason for his questions. I tell him, I do not see why the white man's trial will need my snowshoes. Chapter 15. When Peter Kelly finished his meeting with Indian John and came down the stairs, Laura invited him to stay for a piece of custard pie. She had made the pie the day before, just in case Mr. Kelly did come back again as he had promised. But Laura said that I was the only person in all of earth and heaven who was to know that she had used up eight whole eggs, four great spoonfuls of precious loaf sugar, and a good bit of our nutmeg to make it. I believe that Peter Kelly didn't know what an answer to how to answer at first. After Laura asked him to say, he stumbled over his words, first saying no, he didn't want to cause us any trouble with our Paul, and then saying perhaps he could stay for a moment to be polite, and finally deciding that that was a real kind offer, and yes, he would greatly appreciate a piece of pie. It's one of our ma's good pies, Laura told him, the kind she used to make. Your ma? Peter Kelly asked gently as they sat down at the table. She is gone? Three years ago, Laura answered. She died in the month of March. God rest her soul. Right after giving birth to our sister Mercy. I added, nodding at Mercy, who had her fingers in the yarn basket again. I don't know why I always had to tell folks that our mall had died giving birth to her. But I did. And it sounded as if I was putting all of the blame for Ma's death on my helpless little sister, who was born into this world silent and nearly blue. Maybe I still was. I don't have any sisters of my own, only brothers, Mr. Kelly said, slowly stirring the tea that Laura had set in front of him. Just two brothers still living now and my pa and my ma, who has grown quite old and feeble, I'm afraid. He shook his head and I could tell his ma was dear to him by the sorrowful way his face looked. Every time I see a meek here, what I can't keep from thinking about is how, and he paused and looked toward the loft stairs, is how my ma wouldn't be alive today. She wouldn't have raised any of us, not my brothers or me, if it weren't for his family. And he pointed upward as if pointing straight at Amik himself. Years ago, his family saved her life. What? I said more loudly than I should have. He glanced at Laura and me. 
I could only have been nine or 10 years old when it happened, he said. It was the fall of the year, I remember, and we had all gone to Cranberry Marsh to pick berries. In my mind, I could picture a cranberry marsh, the green color of the leaves and the bright red berries nestled inside like jewels. Peter Kelly continued, all of us went, my pa and ma, my four brothers. I remember how it was a beautiful autumn afternoon, not a hen of a cloud. All was right with the world, it seemed. That's what I remember most about that day. He wrinkled his forehead. Do you understand what I mean? I nodded. There was a summer afternoon before Ma died that I had not forgotten either. It was a real pretty day. Me and Laura and Ma were picking beans in the garden and we got to sing in songs and tossing beans from one basket to another just for our own amusement. We had never done a thing like that before and we must have been a sight. I could still recall the bright blue sky and the sound of Ma laughing. Peter Kelly shook his head. Maybe we weren't watching as close as we should have been on account of how beautiful that day was, but before any of us knew what happened, a rattlesnake came through the cranberries, just came up real sudden, and it struck our mall hard on the foot. I caught my breath. I had been, I had seen more than my share of rattlesnakes, and I knew what they could do to folks if you came across them unawares. Peter Kelly closed his eyes, as if he was remembering the scene exactly as it was. I can still hear the terrible sound of Ma's voice shrinking for us. Paul sent me and my brother Nathaniel running for the nearest town to fetch a doctor. Never ran so fast in all my life, he said softly, trying to save my Ma that morning. I swallowed hard, thinking about my own Ma. The doctor told us to bind up her foot with tobacco leaves to draw out the poison. If the swelling grew worse, he said to dig a hole in the ground and have her put her foot inside the dirt, packed in tobacco leaves. We tried everything, Peter Kelly shook his head, but Ma's foot and leg swelled up as full as the skin could hold. It was black from the poison. Truly it was, and he took a deep breath. We knew she wasn't long for the earth. Not more than a few days left, everyone told us. And we didn't know how we would manage in the world without her. My youngest brother was only four. I cast a look at Laura because I remembered this feeling too well. Peter Kelly continued. The next day, my older brother met a Chippewa man fishing in our river. All of us could speak some words in Chippewa and my brother the best of all. So my brother told the Indian, Peter's voice caught in his throat. He told him about the common death of our mom. That same evening, Peter Kelly said, I heard a soft knock on our door and I opened it to see who it was. A meek's grandmother stood outside in the darkness. He squinted his eyes. All these years later, I can still recall exactly what she looked like. She was called by the name Old Turtle Woman. And I remember how she was a small woman with stooped shoulders and gray streaked hair and how she always wore a circle of a tiny rabbit bones around her neck. The woman pressed a bundle of leaves toward me, saying, Abijitunan, Abijitunan, use them, use them. And Peter Kelly looked down at his hands. Two of the women in our settlement were already sewing Ma's burial clothes when we bound the leaves on her swollen leg that night, as Amik's grandmother had told us to do. But not a one of us expected those leaves would change a thing. Certainly we didn't. Mr. Kelly stopped and took a long sip of tea. And the leaves did? I asked, hardly daring to believe that they would. It made me shiver to think about that blackened, swelled up leg, 
with Indian leaves wrapped around it and the women sewing burial clothes in the next room. Peter Kelly nodded and gave a wide grin. In the morning, my ma was well enough to get out of bed and to try on those clothes, those burial clothes for size. Surely not, Laura cried. Yes, she was fine and well again, he insisted. The leaves, they did all that, I said. Mr. Kelly shrugged. All I can say is that those of us who saw it with our own eyes believed it to be so, and Ma has lived more than a dozen good years since. In the silence after he finished his story, I thought about my own Ma. I imagined the old Indian woman with the rabbit bone necklace coming to our cabin when my Ma was dying. Even then, I was certain she would never have taken help from an Indian. Knowing my Ma, she would rather have died and gone to the next world than to have allowed Indians to save her. I glanced over at Laura and wondered what we would do if we were in the same place. Seemed like all we were all lost in our thoughts until Mr. Kelly said he didn't mean to keep us from eating our pie, and Laura jumped up to serve the forgotten pieces. I could tell that Mr. Kelly liked that pie real well because he didn't stop to take one breath while eating it. He even picked up the crumbs one by one with the back of his fork. When he finished, he shook his head slowly and said that our ma's custard pie was the best he'd ever tasted. Laura just nodded and said that our ma always was a good cook, but there was still much to be learned since she had gone. Yes, I expect there is, Mr. Kelly said in a quiet way, and I caught him giving Laura a kind look as he pushed back his chair to leave. When he reached the door down to pick up the snowshoe, I couldn't help noticing in it again. I think he must have seen me staring at it because he tucked it quickly under his arm and didn't say one word of explanation about it. All Peter Kelly told us before he left was that he hoped to return one last time before the trial to talk to a meek. Maybe his eyes said that he hoped to see Laura again, too. It was hard telling. But before he disappeared down the path, he turned and waved at us. I remember how he stopped right in the middle of his ambling walk and turned around. Taking off his hat, he waved it once in the air. The sunlight caught his copper red hair, and I had to admit that maybe he was handsome in a skinny sort of way. That would be the last glimpse we would have of him for nearly two weeks. Indian John. Red hair says he will be gone many nights until the end of the flowering moon is near, preparing for the trial. Before he leaves, he reaches deep inside his coat to find a duckbill of sweet maple sugar and two acorn cakes from Ricebird and a bag of tobacco from Ajia, my father. I take the gifts, and Red Hair says, Your wife and children and the old ones wish me to tell you that their hearts melt, and they pray to Kichi Manitou for your return. After the trial, I will go back, I ask. Yeah. Yes, Red Hair says. I will hunt in the woods and fish in the rivers and see the sunrise and fall in the sky again. Ea, ea, ea. Yes, 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 he says. After Red Hair has gone, I pour the sandy grains of maple sugar into my mouth. The taste of the trees is sweet on my tongue. <laughs>